If you have a Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 24. We're going to be 24th chapter of the book of Acts. Looks like we're fully back on board. Uh, Tim, thanks for leading through. No power uh, for the last song. I'm going to go ahead and blame this on the bouncy house, is exactly what it was. <clears throat> so there were two possibilities, so I, I ran out to go see. But I thought, one, maybe people are cooking delicious things for the picnic, and maybe that was it. But the kitchen was completely empty, so it wasn't that. And we walked around the side, and sure enough, there was like a half-blown-up bouncy house in the back. And so it turns out you can't run everything in here and also have a place to play outside. So don't, don't do that. Anyway, I apologize for that. Thanks for, for hanging in there. Um, can you imagine that? Like, what if we had to be Christians, like, in a place with no power? This is funny. It's just so funny, the things that we are, like, addicted to. We fret. It's like Jesus left the building or something. Uh, he's here. He's here, I promise. And everything's fine. And thanks for sticking it out. I'm going to start reading in uh, the beginning of Acts chapter 24. I'd love for you to kind of find your way there. I'd love for you to follow along. It's the Bible. It's the Word of God that is, uh, that is transformative and changing. Uh, it is not, uh, not just some special experience that you can have here. It's not that someone put it together in a speech for you. We would love nothing more than for you to get to the point where you are seeking out and searching Scripture for yourself. My biggest prayer is that in any teaching that I do, any labor that I do in, in, in attempting to proclaim these things, is that all it does is just get your appetite uh, more and more hungry to see who God is and what he's done for you. We need to come to God in the terms that he's defined, and he has defined who he is and what he's done for us in his word. And so I'd love for you to, to read along with me, not out loud, but just to follow along. Uh, let me give you a little bit of an overview before we jump in of what's happening. Uh, do you guys remember way back when, all the way back in March, when we were in the book of Acts? Remember that? Life is, uh, is full, so I'm sure for most of you that feels like an eternity ago. I mean, some of you guys didn't even have college degrees back then, right? Like, uh, it's amazing what can change in just a short period of time. We took the month of April to look on to look at the resurrection of Jesus and the hope that it gives us. Um, turns out the resurrection's a pretty big deal, and so we wanted to pause and look at it. And now we're going to go back, and for the month of May, we are finishing up what it looks like for Paul to be faithful to his calling. Acts chapter 20, he's done with the frenetic pace of missionary journeys, and he says, my greatest prayer is if I could just be faithful to the calling that God has in my life. I want to finish the course. And this is what finishing the course looks like for him. I would argue that for a majority of us, just finishing the course, being faithful, is something we don't think, enough, think about enough. Many of us don't have dreams of just keeping the status quo going, right? Give me your five-year plan. Status quo, I'm done. Most of us don't think like that. We live in a world that constantly tells us it needs to be progressing and different and better and other job and new house and new place and new friends. Maybe the friends should have been off the list. That's kind of harsh. But here's the, here's the idea, right? The idea is, is if you are walking faithfully in the identity that God has given you and in the calling that God has placed in your life, then progress is not to move on from that thing. Status quo is exactly what you need. You'll never hear a conversation, or I hope you never hear one. A guy saying to his friend, 
Hey, what's up? The other guy says, man, so much new. I mean, uh, let's see. Man, I gave up parenting my kids. I'm not doing that anymore. Uh, I mean, I did that for seven years, you know. I did it for seven years. Just kind of started to feel a little status quo. Just meals every day, you know, putting food on the table. Boy, it really seemed like I was in a rut just parenting those kids, being a father, being a dad. Glad I moved on early on to... Right, you see the ridiculousness of this, right? Do I need to keep going? There are certain callings. There's things that God has given us to cherish and to guard and to protect where the thing that you can long for, the best thing you can possibly do is to say to someone, here I am, here I stand, come back in 10 years, I'm here, I'm standing. To plod along faithfully is an amazing gift, to just do what you've been called to do. And that's what Paul wants to do. It's more astounding because as we're going to see, it's not candy cane lane for him. This is not, I hope to stay status quo in my retirement of daiquiris and affirmation and grandkids coming to visit me at the beach, right? This is a life of intense persecution. It's a life of being, being scrutinized at every turn. And so we're diving in. Paul is in Caesarea. He's been taken before Felix, who's a big deal. He's a ruler. And this is what we find in Acts chapter 24. I'm going to read the whole chapter. I'd love for you to follow along. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. <clears throat> and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying... Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple... But we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. 
But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Let me pray. God, what a gift. Uh, What a gift your, your word is to us. It gives us such a declaration clearly of who you are. You've not remained hidden. You are clear. You've spoken clearly. We thank you that not only do we find your work for us in redeeming us through Jesus, but you also give us examples. Thank you for the example of Paul. Thank you for his desire, his longing after faithfulness to walk in the calling that you'd given him. I pray that we'd learn from this, that we would gain an understanding, an insight, that we'd be stirred up to not expect everything to go perfect or well, to cherish and guard and want a clear conscience before you. And I pray that when given an opportunity, that we would speak boldly, speak sincerely about Jesus and what he has done. I pray you'd bless everyone that's gathered here. Help us to learn. Help us to grow. We confess to you our need. We're distracted. We're skeptics. We're doubters. We are often dull in our senses. We cannot see clearly. And even when we do see clearly, God, it's oftentimes difficult to submit to you and to your word. So help us. Holy Spirit, come. Bring comfort where comfort is needed. Bring conviction where conviction is needed. Help us to learn together. We want more of who you are. We want to see you clearly. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. The things that we're going to learn from Paul are mostly from his example. I love to read. Anyone else love to to read? It took me a while to figure out that I learned to read. In fact, I remember the first time that I ever read a book. Um, I think I might have maybe told this story before. I don't know if uh, anyone remembers. You know, the first, the first book I recall actually interacting with and thinking to myself, a book is an amazing thing. When I was in seventh grade, I had to read the book, Homeward Bound. Anybody? You know this story, right? It's an amazing tale. It's the first time that I engaged with a book. I remember reading it start to finish. I didn't just sort of wing it. I mean, let's be honest, in most literature classes, most times a book is assigned. You can pick up enough of the conversation to just kind of wing it, right? You hear two comments, and then you just take the middle ground. Oh, I like what Kim said about the guy and how he was struggling with his identity, and that's why he went to her. But what I really felt like was what John kind of said, and maybe it's sort of both, don't you think? Right? You didn't read the book. You don't know what you're doing. And I was kind of that kid for the longest time. But then Homeward Bound kind of snuck up on me, and I just, I just loved to, to read. I got lost in the story with these animals. I remember the, the occasion of like lifting my eyes from the book and being like, I'm still at my house. I'm alive in the story. What happened? 
And so when my attachment to reading started to begin, one of the things that I loved the most was biographies and autobiographies. I love to learn from the mistakes of other people. <laughs> That's really what a biography or an autobiography is, right? Like someone goes before, they live for 40 or 50, 60, 70 years, they write down all their mistakes, and then they hand it to you in a neatly bound copy so that you can go and make all the same mistakes anyway. Right? That's pretty much, that's kind of how I roll with it. What we're learning at this point is not so much from Paul's message, though he has a lot to say, and we're going to see it. We have the privilege of learning from this biography of what it looks like for Paul to walk faithfully. This is what real life looks like for Paul. And there's just a few things that I'm going to mention from this particular text. A few we're going to land on and sort of simmer on a little bit more than others. But we're going to look at Paul's trial, okay? Trial. Now, when you get really uptight and sort of overthink how you're going to communicate something, you come up with words like this. Paul's trial, huh? And then, like, I was really sort of giddy about this idea. Trial, like it's suffering, persecuted. He has, he has chains on, right? He has no more freedom and control. But it's also like a for real trial. See what we did there? Trials, metaphorically, trials, literally. Okay, so you're with me. And uh, this is why sermon prep is a, bad, is a hard thing to get through. Because you end up like thinking for a long time about mundane words that none of you care about. But... <laughs> Trials. We want to look at Paul's trial, okay? He has a trial. We need to think about that. Then I want to look at his conscience. I want to look at good old-fashioned conscience. And yes, I'm going to address and talk about this idea that all of us have a certain amount of self-speak, a soul narrative that screams up to us, and Scripture says either alternately condemns us or commends us. It speaks to us about the world we're encountering and right and wrong. And all of us have a conscience. And Paul is very, very clear about guarding his. In fact, he sort of shows us this little window where the magic engine behind his confidence is the way that he walks with a clear conscience. It's like a souped-up secret engine, like a Tesla 85 plus or whatever it's called, right? Any nerds? You with me? That's what it's like. The conscience becomes an engine of his life. It's driving who he is. And then the last thing we're going to look at is really this unbelievable perspective that Paul has. He has an unbelievable perspective that though he's on trial, the truth of the gospel lets him look at the world in a different kind of way. He doesn't fret. That's what we're going to, to try and look at. So let me just point out the first and most obvious one. Paul is on trial. He has obeyed God. He was knocked to the ground. He was blinded. God said, you are my chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And Paul has been faithfully plodding along in this mission. He has done, according to his own testimony and his own word, according to Luke's record, this historical record that we have in scripture, he's basically done a good job. He's been admirable. If I ever ever, ever, ever am able to approach the callings, the roles that God has in my life with the kind of tenacity, the ferocious nature, the fruitfulness that Paul had, like that is a win, a huge win. And yet, these are the kinds of words that we find in Acts chapter 24. He is brought before the governor. That's usually like not a good thing. Anybody in first grade knows that when you get called to the principal's office, it's not usually for pizza, right? 
Although actually my kids won this little reading award thing. This is like a brag time. And I know all of you have as many great stories about your kids, but you don't have a microphone on your face. So <laughs> the, uh, he won like a little reading award, right? And he got to go to the principal's office. And so just like in joking, like I teased him for a couple days about like, you're going to the principal's office. I don't know, right? And it turned out for real, like they had a pizza party. That wasn't the way it was when I was a kid, right? When I was a kid, you get dragged before the governor. This is not good. This is not what Paul wanted to do. In his 10-year plan, it wasn't like, here's what I think. I think about year eight, get some shackles on, get dragged before the governor in Caesarea. That'd be, that'd be good. Not just before the governor, but then there's people bringing their case against Paul, it says in verse 1. In verse 2, there's a guy who came down as a spokesman. His entire job, like a wonderful prosecuting attorney, is to begin to accuse Paul. It's his whole job. So God gives Paul a task. He walks faithfully in it. And he finds himself before the governor with very capable, religiously respected people whose entire job is just to accuse him. This is enough to make a person uncomfortable. What if someone just followed you around for years on end and their entire job was to simply accuse you before the authorities? That's the place that Paul has found himself. It's not just Tertullus that's doing it. It says the Jews joined in in verse 9 in their charge against him. This is a case that's being brought against Paul. There's a trial. And I think that what this shows us, I'm sure a lot of different things, but it shows us this simple fact. That idea, that dream, that message that our heart wants to long after, that if we just do things the right way, if we just do things faithfully enough, then everything will be perfect, is a lie. We don't live in that kind of world. And we need to tell ourselves this over and over and over again. You know, the scripture, one of the most constant themes of scripture is this idea. We live in a broken and a fallen world and you will both sin and be affected by sin. This is a crazy place we live in and there's nothing you can do to stop the trials sometimes, the suffering of life. You can do everything right and someone will still bring an accusation. That's the kind of world we live in. And we need to just face that. Jesus came because we live in that world, but just because Jesus came, it doesn't wish that world away. This is a fallen and a broken place. When you describe to your children and they have to wrestle with what natural disasters are, it's crazy. You tell them about an earthquake, and they realize, fittingly, that sounds horrible and terrifying. Well, Dad... Well, Dad, why did those people stay there when the earthquake was going to happen? Oh, because we don't know it's going to happen. We don't know it's going to happen? No, we don't. Well, where do earthquakes happen? Wherever they want. This is the world that we live in, right? And sometimes we gloss it over because we have, like, smartphones and all the conveniences of a modern world, but this place is a broken place. And even when you do things right, people will bring accusations. You will get yourself into situations because of sin and fallenness. Life will be hard. That's what we're learning from Paul. And Paul's not the first to learn it. There's a whole book in the Old Testament, Job, whose basic theme is this exact idea. You may very well be doing the exact right thing. In fact, the God-ordained thing for your life 
and it will be difficult. This is very important for us to learn. We need to think on this lesson and think on it hard because I think oftentimes we rob our souls of joy or peace or contentment and replace it with bitterness and sadness and and shaking of fists. And at the core of it, the complaint is basically something like this. I thought it wouldn't be like this. I worked hard. I did the right thing. Like life is supposed to work out for me. And what we deserve and what is actually going to happen in life, of course we want good things. I pray with you for that. But we cannot miss the lessons. This is a biography. We cannot miss the lessons. Paul is faithfully walking in a God-ordained mission. And you know what part of that life included? Being put in prison and being accused falsely by all of his kinsmen, all of the most respected leaders. Faithfulness for Paul meant embracing the fact that the only life we actually get to live is the one that comes to us day by day. This one, today. Not the one that we wish to take place. And I I know this, this is something that maybe in the moment that you're living in, this doesn't resonate with you, but it will at a certain point. I counsel people all the time. I meet with people, sometimes single people. They're dating. Something seems promising. I'm excited. I follow up with it. I am the king of sticking my foot in my mouth when it comes to romantic relationships. I will not ask someone about a romantic relationship five times in a row when I see them. The sixth time, they broke up last night. I guarantee it. I absolutely guarantee it. I ask them, what happened in your relationship? What in the world is going on? And seriously, I hear things like this. I don't know. It was just kind of hard. It's like it took some work. I mean, you know, you know what I mean? It's like when we sat together, it was like, conversation was like, it's like I had to think of things to like ask them. It just took some work. I don't know. So I just, there's just no way. It just wasn't meant to be. What world are we living in, right? For real, it was hard, so it wasn't meant to be like, This book makes no sense if that's the world we're living in. This world is a hard world. Everything worthwhile includes effort. We live in an upstream world. That's where we live. You know what I mean by that? Because of the fall, because of your own heart, because of sin, you are always paddling upstream. I like to canoe sometimes. It's always the most inconvenient thing when I want to be over there and all the water wants to be over there. I know. Like, why? Why does all the food that tastes good have to be, you know what I mean? I know some of you are vegans and you're like, what are you talking about? Chilled asparagus raw is amazing. Tastes amazing. Tastes amazing. You have been blessed with an unbelievable ability to eat food. We live in an upstream world. That's all there is to it. It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. That's what we're learning from Paul. There are trials in this life. There really are. And I think until we embrace that fact, what we're, what we're in danger of doing, we're tempted, we're tempted in any given moment to not be grateful for the day that we've been given because we're longing. We're longing for some other kind of dream that's out there. And it's just not. We need to learn this from Paul. I think the other thing that's significant for us is we need to realize that fruitful ministry can take place in a million different circumstances. Many of us, whether we know it or not, have created a sort of functional savior or a functional sort of stability and comfort in the political system that we're in, for instance. 
And we respond to changes in policy or the things that are going on around us. We respond disproportionately. It's okay to lament. It's okay to speak and say, this is not how things should be. Pray like that. Vote your conscience. Of course. But when we respond disproportionately, when we respond as though a loss of a particular political system or climate is going to thwart God, then we reveal more about ourselves and our own heart than we do about any culture that we are crusading against. Paul was unbelievably fruitful and faithful in a nation that basically mandated idol worship of Caesar. He was imprisoned for speaking the gospel. Imprisoned. He was beaten multiple times. This is the world that he lived in. I think for a lot of us, because honestly, things change. They change rapidly. Anyone who pays attention and watches and cares, especially in this town where a seat of government, right? These things matter. They feel extremely important. They are extremely important, but they are not the end of the world. God is in control. He reigns. He will build his church, and sometimes he will build it delightfully, exactly against all of the opposition of the world. Do you know that your faithfulness as a Christian, the fruitfulness of the church, does not depend on a political climate or a particular, or a particular favoritism of our brand of Christianity? It doesn't. I think we need to say that to ourselves. I am just as tempted as anyone to believe, man, if this law goes away, if this happens this way, if these people don't do this, what if this person vote that, this? Then what? Then it's sad and we lament it and we pray, but God is not thwarted. A trial in Paul's life, a trial before the government did not mean failure. He was not abandoned by God. And it's not just the political environment, right? Let's say the political environment doesn't change at all. It's easy for people to lament the fact that we don't have a routine religious culture that fills our pews and our churches with ease. You know, back in the good old days, people just came to church. They just came to church. They knew what was good for them, and they just showed up at church. And we're bitter and lament and entitled as though it were a bother for us to live in the day and age and love the people that God has actually put before us. We have to go to them. We have to meet them where they are. We have to love people and listen to them in order to engage them. This is not a punishment, and it does not mean that God is failing. I think we need to be very, very careful that we can fall into the trap. We can fall into the trap of believing that any particular system is what's going to save us. And for sure, we can believe that somehow if we meet trials or something difficult, it must not be God's plan. One of my favorite guys to read is G.K. Chesterton. He's an interesting writer, apologetic. He noted the consistent way that God seems to laugh in derision at the way the world wants to stamp out the church or Christianity or religion in general. This is just a simple quote from him. At least five times the Christian faith has to all appearances gone to the dogs. In each of these five cases, it was the dog that died. I know that you have to be like, maybe you don't have to be, but for some of you, you're like serious history wonks. Like history, I was going to say history channel. Yeah, right. That's like, Pawn, pawn shops. <laughs> like, find a channel that actually has history and like that's what you're watching. You care and so you know 
the history of regimes that have attempted to sort of wipe out Christianity. You know what it is? This is what, this is what it's going to be. The enlightenment has come. We're finally rid of this thing. You know what it is? Communism has come. Socialism has come. We're finally rid of this thing called the church and Christianity. And every single time, God is not mocked. He is not thwarted by a system and a world that is not perfect. He came to save that world. He knows it's not perfect and he works anyway. I hope that makes sense. This, is, this has applications a million different ways. Job seekers, you're looking for a job. I just thought that I'd get my degree and the next day people would just offer me like five jobs and I'd get to pick, right? And they would fly me on their money to all the interviews, right? Like I just thought that's the way it would be. I know it's hard to wait for a job and not know what's going to come next. It does not mean that God has abandoned you. Parenting. Your children will not walk the exact path that you want them to go. It does not mean that you don't lament and pray for them and speak truth to them winsomely, graciously, calling to them. But this world is a broken place. And we need to understand. Let's learn the lessons from Scripture. It doesn't mean God has failed or he's abandoned. I hope that makes sense. There's a whole... There's a sermon in there somewhere, but we've got to go on to the next point. I want to look at Paul's conscience. This seems to be the secret engine that drives the chapter. One of the things when you're studying the Bible is you can start to look through, and of course, this particular section is difficult maybe to learn and, and look through because it's a, it's a narrative passage. But there's usually a few verses that kind of give you an idea. They're the sort of central point. They're the... Yeah, anybody ever uh, rock a teetotter back in the day? You know? Have those been deemed too unsafe for our children? Now I'm going to fall into that trap of like, where's the world gone? It's all for loss. Right? I just, I just told you not to do that. But back, you know what I mean? Like there's like a fulcrum point and a teetotter. And usually in a, in a chapter, there's like these verses that sort of everything kind of hangs on it. And I really believe that the center part of chapter 24 is this idea of Paul and the way he deals with his conscience. He says, starting in verse 14, but this I confess to you, that according to the way, the way, it's an interesting phrase, we'll come back to it later, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. The fact that he says that probably means these were Pharisees, not Sadducees in the Jewish, in the Jewish tradition. Verse 16. I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Pains to have a clear conscience. This is not the first time that Paul is serious about his conscience. In fact, just one chapter before, the beginning of Acts chapter 23, when he stands up before the council, just after he had to be basically rescued from being beaten to death, he stands up and he says this, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Do you know how freeing and powerful it is for you to go to sleep at night and be able to honestly say before God, God, I'm not perfect and I'm faithless and I doubt and I'm skeptical and I sin in a million different ways, but I've committed my life to you and who you've called me to be, I want to be that. I'm faithfully in heart. I'm walking after you. That is a freeing and a powerful thing. This is the deep secret engine of Paul's life. Religious leaders accusing him, fine. The, Jew, the Roman leaders oppressing him, okay. He knows who he is, 
who he is in Jesus Christ, and he is free because he has this clear conscience. He writes a similar thing to Timothy later in prison in Rome. One of the last things he writes, he says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with what? With a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. I think in a lot of ways, Paul's mission was motivated by a clear conscience. He said at a certain point, Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. In other words, he could have not gone on a mission and been faithful to testify to the gospel. He could have, but it would have seared his conscience. He could have shrunken back in a point where he could have testified to his faith, but it would have seared his conscience. He could have done a lot of different things, but he took great pains, he says in verse 16 of Acts 24, to have a clear conscience. In a lot of ways, his mission was motivated by that clear conscience. He could do nothing but what he was compelled to do. 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ compels us. Compels us. Do you have any of that in your life? Are you compelled to something? Everybody's got to work. It's just the world we live in. I am not preaching the kind of dream that I think a lot of people live in of like, yeah, I would have taken that job, but you know it's work. I just really want to do what my heart longs after. <laughs> like, of course, so does everyone. But like, you need bread, so go work, right? But everybody, I think, needs a little bit of this. You have a sense that you're called to something? You have a sense that like, come what may, this is who God's designed me to be, and I am, I'm all in on this thing. You're compelled. This is the kind of love that people see in parents to children, husbands to wives. He's got a clear conscience. I think not only did it, was his mission motivated by a clear conscience, but it gave him one. Day after day after day, when you can say to yourself, I did not do, I did not do everything perfectly, but I did my best, and I'm walking in what God's called me to do. There's an unbelievable freedom in that, an unbelievable joy in that. No matter what happened to Paul, this is the key, no matter what happened to Paul, he was ultimately doing what he was called to do. He knew that he had been ultimately accepted, he had been loved, he would be sustained in Christ. That's what true freedom looks like. That's what true, true power looks like. You make $180 million on a fight. I don't care how much money you make. If you do not have a clear conscience before God, you are not free. I think this is the power that Paul is dealing with. Let me give you a couple encouragements about the conscience before I move on real quickly. One is I think we need to think clearly about the fact that we have a conscience. You know that there is a massive and dominant philosophy of human life and human existence that basically denies the existence of any kind of divine right or wrong, any sort of absolute truth, which basically completely robs the conscience of any power whatsoever. Oh, that thing that you feel inside of you that something was right or wrong, it's just a social construct. Someone made that up and handed that to you. That's why you feel like that. We have to think as Christians very clearly about this thing that God has given us. Scripture tells us that he placed eternity in our hearts. That means that in some way your soul will be speaking to you about spiritual life. Your soul will be speaking to you that there must be more to life than just this place. This is a gift that God has given you. Romans chapter 1, Paul says... 
that one of the most stressful and terrifying things that can happen in someone's life is they begin to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They have to keep telling their conscience no. Have you ever been that person who has a seared conscience? You ever met someone like that? You think to yourself, how could they possibly do the things that they do? It's because we haven't thought clearly about it. In fact, it probably seared our conscience. And so I want to encourage you, consider, consider what it is, this gift that God has put inside of you of knowing what right and wrong is, a sense of him beckoning you, a sense of spiritual realities. There's a reason that a massive percentage, massive percentage of all humanity that has ever walked on the face of the earth, I don't care what structure of society, what time, what period, what conveniences, what technology, there has been the dominant force in human beings crying out and saying, there must be something more. The conscience is a gift to be stewarded. Paul says in Romans 12 and in 14 and 1 Corinthians as well, that the gift of the conscience is something to be stewarded and to be very careful about. You do not want to walk in a way that sears your conscience. Sometimes he actually even says, it's better for someone to do something that is not according to knowledge. In other words, to remain ignorant in something so long as their conscience is not seared. That's how much of a gift this thing is in us. Another encouragement, though, and I think that we need this, especially for religious people who feel like we see black and white and we know what is right. Though your conscience is a gift, it is not a tyrant over every circumstance, and it is not a tyrant over other people's circumstances. I hope hope you hear that. You hear that? Your conscience is a gift from God for you. It is not a sword of power over other people. It's not a tyrant over other people. I think it is very, very tempting to live like this. Oh, I feel very strongly about this. I feel very, I have a check in my spirit about this. And so I'm just going to tell you that kind of thing is fine. What is not fine is I have a check in my spirit. I feel strongly about this. Therefore you must X, Y, or Z. Have you been this person before? It's okay to confess it. You have, I have. I know that I have. This is not why conscience was given. We speak the truth to one another in love. We stir one another on into good works. But God has not given anyone a conscience to be a tyrant over another person's conscience. I think scripture is clear about that. We have a certain amount of Christian liberty. And it needs to be protected. I think we need to be careful. Oftentimes, what we believe is speaking the truth in love is really just our egotistical attempts to place our conscience upon someone else. We've got to be really careful about it. People can sniff that out. They really can. The last thing, and I think this is really, really careful. It goes under the same lines, but a little bit different. Though conscience has been given to you as a gift, it does not mean it comes fully orbed, right? It's not fully operational. When you get it, it's like the gift you buy for your kid on Christmas. It's like assembly required a little bit or something like that. I was going to make a joke about Ikea, but... Some of you guys lose your religion with things like that, right? Like that's like, it's that kind of idea. Your conscience, though a gift and though real and though it speaks to you, needs to be, needs to be matured. You need to have people in your life that you can bring things to and say, this is what I'm feeling, what do you think? Ultimately, your conscience is still bound and underneath the truth of the word of, of God. Everything that you feel and everything that you think and every instinct that you have still needs to be tempered and tested and matured. 
Just because you have a conscience that should be guarded does not mean that it is fully grown right off the bat. It's constant need of checking and of wisdom. Hopefully that's clear. I think you could probably think of a million different applications. But it's a terrifying thing. It's a terrifying thing to not realize that there is something God has given you that screams out to you. You are responsible and accountable to God. What you do matters. It's a gift. The last thing that I want to show you is at the end of Acts chapter 24. And consider this really interesting thing that happens with Paul and Felix. This account... At the end of Acts chapter 24 to the beginning of Acts chapter 25, we find out that Paul stays in prison for two years. Now, when you read the Bible and you kick up your feet with coffee, a little biscotti or something like that. Is that how you say that word? I don't even know how you say it. It's like the secret chocolate cookie. It's a cookie. So you're eating cookie in your coffee and you're drinking. And you're drinking your coffee and you're reading the Bible. You think to yourself, Paul wants to be faithful. And then 20 minutes later, you finish the book of Acts and you think, yeah, that was a lot. Oh, yeah, to be faithful for this whole time I was reading. You realize in just a few short verses, Luke is giving a historical narrative where Paul is dealing with the consequences of his conscience before God for years. Now, here's the amazing perspective that Paul has, and I think it's the only thing that keeps him going. In this section, Felix is, Felix is sort of Drawing him out, asking him to preach to him, saying, what do you know? It says at one point that Felix has a rather accurate knowledge of the way. The way is the, the phrase that scripture uses up to this point for Christianity. It's the most dominant way. Emphasizes the following of Jesus, the doing of the things of Christianity. Though he had knowledge, he did not have faith. And he comes before Felix and he begins to speak with him. Now I think it's interesting to know the, the things that he actually says... When given an opportunity to speak to this man in power about his faith in Christ Jesus, I think verse 25 is profound and informative for us. Can you imagine this? Okay, I'm imprisoned. I was just beaten. This man holds my whole life in his hands. I need to figure out what I'm going to say. I'm going to go before the king. I know I'm going to give him a speech about self-control. That's what it is. Wait a minute. Okay, you're powerful and you have armies and people could come in here and just completely take my life if they want. Okay, I'm going to talk to you about the coming judgment. You're going to be judged, Felix. I just want you to know. How in the world can a man who's on trial, he's really on trial, he is not alarmed, he is not concerned, he seems perfectly content with what God is bringing him in his life at this moment, he says, I'm not running in vain. And he flips the script completely. And he proclaims a gospel of truth and of righteousness and self-control and coming judgment. And what he calls Felix to see is basically this. Felix, you think I'm the one on trial. But Jesus came and he heralded the fact that one day every one of us will be on trial. You are ruling now, but you will not rule forever. And you will stand before God and you will have to give an account. And in that day, Jesus will either absorb all the accusation. Jesus will either have won a victory for you and given you a certain verdict. Or you will stand before God and have to answer for all of the accusations of your own sin, of your own heart, for the entirety of eternity. 
He flips the script completely. Paul, actually on trial, not alarmed. And what does verse 25 say? Felix, in power, he was alarmed. He is alarmed. This is one of the things that the gospel does. It must arrest our attention. It must call from us a kind of sober-minded approach to eternity and spirituality and life. I love the way Paul talks about his faith in Christ Jesus here. Do you know that there's been a popular movement for at least a hundred years? In some denominations, the entire goal is to rid Christianity of any of the harsh parts. Any of the hard parts. Call them to Jesus who loves them perfectly, but do not ask them to do anything that they wouldn't want to do or anything that seems difficult. This is the entire tradition of faith. And there's books written on the perfect attempts to do this. I ended up watching a sermon for a little while of a guy from the Bahamas last week. The internet's a strange place, isn't it? Like, I don't, like YouTube, what, how do I get here? I don't know. I'm listening to a sermon, and this guy is talking about how to be productive and fruitful with people in their lives, and talking about preaching the kingdom. He says exactly this to his congregation. You need to call people to Jesus and what he has for them in the kingdom. But when you do that, stop talking about that cross. Ain't nobody want to hear about blood and judgment and sins. No wonder it doesn't work. Stop telling people about the cross. You need to tell them about the kingdom. That's what people want to hear. They know they're longing for good things. This is so antithetical to Paul. Paul had every reason in the world to shrink back and give a nice, tidy, diplomatic, well, sir, you see, it's just a little religious tradition here, and it's very petty disagree. Don't even worry about it. It doesn't impact you. We're going to be fine. You stay here in Caesarea. We'll go to Jerusalem. We love people. That's what we do. We just, we love people. But Paul has a perspective that's bigger than that, and he longs, and he cares for Felix's soul. He says, Felix, I know I'm on trial. I know I'm on trial, but there is a coming judgment. You know that? And unless you have a righteousness that goes beyond even the prophets, you cannot stand before God. This is like serious preaching, right? This is for real. This is not glossing over anything. He doesn't do Felix any favors by softening the message. He has a perspective that says one day everyone will stand accountable to God. And you will either be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ or all of your tattered rags of self-righteousness will be revealed perfectly. It's why we call people to Jesus. But there's only one kind of Jesus. It's through the cross. It's either you humble yourself and confess sins and lay yourself on him, or you have no hope. That's the only message to offer. Every other gospel is a false gospel. It's why we call you to Jesus Christ. It's why we sing of him, because one day you'll stand before God and you will cling to his righteousness more than you've clinged to anything in your life. You'll see things how they really are. Felix thought he was in charge and he had power and he was bringing the trial. And Paul just says, oh, there's a bigger reality than that. That's the perspective that he brings. And I love Paul for it. And I want to learn from him. I want to learn from him in these things. And when he gets an opportunity to speak truth, it doesn't probably mean that he was cantankerous just to be mean. 
He didn't like TMZ, Felix's life, right? Is that a thing? I so wanted to be hip and cool. I, I got it? Is that the one? Is that the thing? Okay. This is not what Paul did. He did not shrink back. And I can't help but think that he learned a little bit from the lesson of Jesus. This is 1 Peter chapter 2. I think it captures this whole thing well, and it's going to wrap us up. 1 Peter chapter 2, we get this idea of suffering for righteousness' sake. Again, that's a theme of Scripture. It doesn't mean all of life is going to go well. You can be faithful in your callings and hard things happen. And that is the call of 1 Peter chapter 2. This is how it starts. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, that's the idea of conscience, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, you endure. this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus, an example for us, that we might follow in his footsteps. Let me pray that that's the case.